Good morning again. Um, this week we're continuing our story, and at this point it's the story of the great King David. And this story starts off with an old prophet who wakes up from a dream. It's more like a nightmare. And then he realizes, oh, it's a vision from God. And he probably thinks there's only two ways this day is going to end, with me either being hugged or hanged. This prophet, his name is Nathan, and he's being called by God to confront his friend, the great King David, on his crimes against God and his nation. And, they, and so Nathan, he's going to do what all good friends do, friends for goodness sake, he's going to have that meeting. So he climbs to the top of Jerusalem where the palace is, and he knocks on his door, and he sees David, and he hasn't seen him for some time. It looks like David hasn't slept in a whole season. The only color in his face is the black circles around his eyes. He's lost muscle mass. He's emaciated. This is not the King David that he knows. And so here's what happens. 2 Samuel chapter 12. And then the Lord Jehovah sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town. One was rich and the other was poor. And the rich man was, had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb that he had purchased. And he raised it and he, he grew up with it and with his children. He shared his food with it. He let that little ewe lamb drink out of his own cup. That lamb would sleep in his arms. It was like one of his daughters. Anyway, a traveler came uh, to visit the rich man, and the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler. And instead, he took that ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared that lamb for dinner. David is an old shepherd, and he knew his sheep. And so David said this. David burned with anger against that man and said to Nathan, as surely as Jehovah lives, that man shall die. He'll pay four times that lamb for the thing that he had done, and he had no pity. That man was a bully, and he took what was not his, and he abused his power and authority because he could. And then Nathan said, you are that man. If there was ever a person whose fate was balancing on a tightrope, it is David right here and right now. How he responds to Nathan, you are that man, will determine the rest of his life. Just to make sure you understand the story, David was the bully. He, he's the king of Israel, and he saw another man's wife bathing, and she was pretty. No, she was very pretty. And so the Bible says that he sent for her, and then he took her because he could, and so he did. And he got caught because he, he impregnated Bathsheba, and then tries to cover it up by having Bathsheba's husband come in, and that didn't work out. And so, again, all to save his precious reputation, David has Bathsheba's husband killed. 
And then he marries Bathsheba and they'll have the child now and he's gotten away with it. He thinks no one knows, God knows. And Nathan now has confronted him. Right now, at this point, it's just silence. How will David respond? When you and I are confronted either by the the spirit of God affecting our conscience or a friend, a friend for goodness sake confronts us, we have two possibilities. Simply put, you have plan A, allow it to be exposed to the light. Let the truth set you free or plan B, cover it up. That's our bent is to cover it up, to lie about it, to make excuses. It's the woman you gave me. It's the snake you sent here. Blame somebody or someone, get out of it. In a single sentence, here's the two choices. Second, Corinthians say, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings forth death. Plan A, right there. Godly sorrow brings forth repentance that leads towards salvation that live, where you live with no regret. That's God's plan. We're calling that plan A. And plan B is worldly sorrow. It leads to death. It brings death. It's short. There's no series here. It's done. Worldly sorrow is not repentance. It's regret about getting caught or being found out or having to deal with the consequences. We've been all part of this story, but I heard a mom saying uh, her little daughter Sally had been a pirate all day long and was disruptive. And then at dinner time, she said, look, Sally, you're not going to get dessert today. I mean, you just, you, you've been acting out. And so Sally says, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, mom, please forgive me. I'm sorry the way I was treating my brother and all these other things. And mom said, okay, I forgive you. That's good. You're still not getting dessert. And so Sally says, then I'm not sorry. <laughs> that is worldly sorrow. That leads to death. It leads to death because it's not real repentance. That plan B will cause the death in your relationship with God and your relationship with the offended person. Today, here's what we're talking about today. Today, we're going to talk about the power of plan A. We're talking about the joy that comes from godly sorrow. We're going to talk about the freedom that you and I have with innocence regained That's what David's talking about. That's what he wants us to know because in this story, when Nathan says, you are that man, David says this, and then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, Jehovah has taken away your sin and you are not going to die. Now we know what's going on in the heart of David because he wrote a diary. Most of his emotions and thoughts are, are found in the book of Psalms. There's poets, there are poems and songs that he wrote, and he wrote two in particular about this season of his life. This is probably a year-long process between the time he has his uh, event with Bathsheba and the time he's confronted with the knock on the door with Nathan. And in that period of time, there's Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. First two psalms I ever uh, memorized, I would recommend that. It's, they're wonderful psalms of repentance. Psalm 51 is, is David pleading with God that he might be forgiven, that he might be clean, that he would regain his innocence again somehow. Psalm 32 is after, probably after this event with Nathan, and, and with Nathan's declaration of his forgiveness, he's praising God for all that he's done. 
This is, a, this is a psalm about the joy of godly sorrow. It's a psalm about what mercy brings about praise. This is Psalm 32, that's what we're going to study today. It's St. Augustine's favorite psalm. He had it written on parchment and nailed it to the, his headboard. And when he'd go to bed at night, it was the last thing he would say. And then when he would wake up, it would be the very first thing he said. Psalm 32 is a great psalm. I would recommend committing it to memory. Let's look at it verse by verse. In the first two verses of, of the psalm, David is going to confess his, his godly sorrow, is going to show up in repentance, and he's not vague about it. He will, in, he will purposefully use four different words towards his abuse towards God, four different ways that we can violate what God has set before us. So let's pay attention to that. You'll see that on the screens, but we'll go into more detail. 32 verses 1 and 2. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose iniquity the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit there is found no deceit. Those are the four words that are highlighted. Let's look at them. The word transgression. Transgression means when we have a revolt or rebellion against God's standards of prohibitions. Okay? Think of it this way. Prohibitions are the thou shalt nots in the Bible. Many are found in the Ten Commandments. And David appears to be running up the score here. Thy shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Thy shalt not commit adultery. Thy shalt not murder. Thy shalt not lie. Thy shalt not steal. He's working his way through all ten, isn't he? At least the thou shalt nots. And when you and I See, uh, thou shalt, shalt not. It's a fence that God has put up for our own protection and for his glory. That's what, in a transgression says, you're not the boss of me. I can either knock this fence down, I will climb over it, I will do whatever I want to do, but I'm going to, I don't have to hear that you can't do that. When that happens, we have to choose between A or B. Plan A says, David wants us to go with plan A. Because if we violate these transgressions, he says, blessed or count yourself lucky whose transgressions are forgiven. Second word he uses is the word sin. Now, sin is not a prohibition that's been violated. It's an admonition that's not been done. It's when God says, thou shall, <laughs> you know, uh, love the Lord your God. And you don't do that. Jesus, if you listen carefully to his ministry, he, if he came here today, he, he would talk to church people. He talked mostly to church people. You know, they were Jewish. But when he was talking to religious people, I, I emphasize that because it, they were so committed in, in not doing sin, they weren't doing all the things God wanted them to do. That's, it wasn't the prohibitions they were violating. It was all the admonitions and so if you look at his conversations, he's usually judging, you know, the religious people because they're like, do good. <laughs> good for you. You're not doing bad. Do good. Love your neighbor. All of them or just the ones I like? See, it's, it's love your wife as Christ loved the church. Honor your father and mother. Have you met my wife? So we, we, we find ourselves saying, okay, we're making excuses projecting going somewhere else or, or debating or defending it, David says, hey, try plan A. It's a contrite heart towards these admonitions, and we surrender to what we haven't done. 
And he says this, blessed or happy is the man whose sins are covered. Next word, the third word is iniquity. And iniquity, excuse me, is when we take a good thing and we make it a bad thing. A a gift from God and we contaminate it. And if, if you think about it, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. The greater the gift that we receive from God, and the more we ruin it, it's the great, that's a greater iniquity. And so you look at sacred things. Sacred um, means to be set apart for a special purpose and sometimes set apart for a spiritual purpose. You can see in all cultures at all times, those are the ones that seem to be violated most often and most egregiously. Iniquity, I'm thinking of, is the first gift that we receive, going all the way back to time, uh, beginning, it's, it's God gives man and wife the ability to enjoy each other. And, and this is a sacred thing because it's set apart for a spiritual purpose because it says in the Bible that not all body parts are created equal and these two become one. Some, I, I'm not here to explain this or even understand it, but it is at least a physical event. It's surely an emotional event and God wants us to know it's a spiritual event. Don't you know that two become one when this happens? It's set apart. It's different. And then if if we're not taking it for granted or making it common, we're prostituting it or corrupting it. I mean, this is the event that allows human beings to cause into creation an eternal being. This is not like any other activity that that people involve themselves in. And so this sacred thing, this this gift of of making love, is the glory of that is violated by making it common or prostituting it in some way. And pornography is a good example of, of of this violation. That's an iniquity of something that's very sacred. And I don't know how many people in this auditorium or in this church have chosen plan B for this kind of iniquity, hiding it, ignoring it, pushing it off, giving excuses, trying to keep things quiet. But I can tell you that in this church, there are dozens of men and women that have chosen plan A in the context of this iniquity. And they said, I can't live in the shadows anymore. I can't live with the guilt anymore. I can't live with the lies anymore. And they've come out and explained that and confessed their sins one to another, sought counseling. And now these dozens of marriages are thriving and have stories that only God could make sense out of. Only his intervention because blessed or joyful is a man whose iniquity the Lord does not count against him. That's what David said. The fourth word he uses here is deceit. Iniquity is when we take a good thing and make it bad. Deceit is when we take a bad thing and make it good. And this is one of the primary motives that's going on in David's life. If you remember, if you were here last week anyway, the reason he has Uriah t- taken is because, he had, because David had this precious reputation up here and he didn't want anybody to find out that he, David really, his character was down here. When people think you're here, but your real life is here, that gap is called deceit because you're trying to make something bad look good. But blessed is the person in the man whose spirit there can be found no deceit. So David's working his way just in the two verses now. He's given us four words to 
understand what it means to have godly sorrow. And he's saying in each one of those, if you choose plan A, it'll lead to repentance that leads to salvation, that leads to a life with no regrets. And he's saying this in the context of a major mood change because in the next two verses, he's going to remember when he was quiet. He's telling us that we need to come clean on things because he remembers the nine to 12 months where he thought he could get away with it. And here's what he says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, that's God's hand, was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as though the heat of the summer. You can choose. You have two choices here. You go plan B. You, right, you can repress your sin. You can justify your de- deceit. You can project your iniquities. Where does that take you but misery? You feel God's thumb on your back constantly. That, that's freedom? That's joy? He says, do this. He says, go with plan A. Godly sorrow brings forth repentance that leads to salvation, a life without regrets. To be clear, there's still plenty of consequences. If you think this is a get-out-of-jail-free card, you don't know David's life. As a matter of fact, much of chapter 12 is all the things that will happen to David because of his sins, his iniquities, his transgressions. And Nathan does not come to him and say, um, you got to go to jail, David. You're, you're caught. He doesn't say, you're forgiven. You're scot-free. He says, you're forgiven. Now go to jail. And what David's trying to tell us is what Shakespeare said, bricks and bars make not a prison. There are a lot of people in prison that are free because they've had godly sorrow. And there's a lot of people walking the streets thinking they're free, and they feel the thumb of God on their back. Their bones are withering away. They're living in the heat of a hot August summer in central Texas. And David's saying this, it is better to have a clear conscience and regain your innocence than it is to be living in constant and perpetual rebellion against God and fellow man. He says, look, That was what I was experiencing, and then I got a knock on the door, and Nathan, Nathan came and confronted me. And so verse 5, he says, and then I acknowledged my sin, look out three times, and then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Pause. Selah. That was a good thing. See, the power of sin is in the secrecy. The power of these iniquities and deceits, it's in the shame that we live with, and the shame is generated by staying in darkness. And David said, you know what? When I quit hiding this from God, it, then I was set free. Now, let me just entertain a really simple question here. It's, it's, it's going to sound kind of stupid, but But, you know, he he talks about when I acknowledge my sin to you, when I did not cover up my iniquity to God, when I confessed his transgression, was that a big day of revelation for the Lord? I mean, it was like, wait, what'd you do, David? Well, I must have been out. I was maybe distracted. God knows all these things. He grieves them more than we do. And, And now David is able to say it out loud, confess our sins to one another. 
And I'll, I'll tell you this, if you could interview him, you'd say, David, of that year, what was the very best day of that year? He would say, the day I heard the knock from David's knuckles on that door. And I knew the moment he walked in, I was finally going to have to make a decision for life or death. You're not hiding anything from God. He has the keys to all the closets containing all of your skeletons. It doesn't make sense. This is the power of innocence in a life transformed by God's grace, this psalm. It is the power of a life transformed by God's grace. It's innocence. Let me show you how it happens. Most scholars believe that David is thinking because of the vocabulary he's choosing to use, especially in the first two verses, that David is thinking of the Day of Atonement, one of the Jewish feasts, and he's attributing it not to a nation but to himself. He is taking personal responsibility for the Day of Atonement. And let me explain the Day of Atonement briefly. There's a long explanation, but it's the greatest of all feasts. It's the Feast of Two Goats. And the way it's described in Leviticus chapter 16, the original one is Aaron, the brother of Moses, is the first great high priest, and he does the first one. And David's saying, that was my day. I get it now. I know what that feast means. The first goat is brought out. These are two perfect, innocent goats. And the first one is brought out by Aaron, and uh, he he is slaughtered, and the blood is accumulated and put in a bowl. And then Aaron goes to the back behind the curtain in the temple or tabernacle, and behind that is the Holy of Holies. It's only able to go in there one time this year for this event. Now, just parenthetically, the feasts are physical expressions of what's happening spiritually. Okay, it's for the spiritually. What do we know about what happens in the spirit world? So, God says, let me give you a couple events so that you can see, taste, touch, smell. You can experience what's what happens in real life, in the, in the world that lives forever. And the Feast of, of, of Atonement or the Day of Atonement, it's just that event. It's one of those events. And so this is what's happening. So the most high holy priest goes back there with this bowl of blood from this goat that had been slaughtered, and he goes in there, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant of God is. Now, in that Ark of the Covenant of God, there are three gifts from God that were all ruined by human responses And now what could have been blessings are all real curses. The first thing that's found in the Ark of the Covenant of God is the Ten Commandments, the thou shalt nots and the thou shalts, all of our expressions of rebellion right there. The second thing that's found in there is a bowl of manna. It represents uh, the continual faithfulness of God's provision. And how do people respond to God's continual faithfulness? Ingratitude. There was a rebellion after a short period of time. Is this it? It's all we have from you? We want more. The third thing is Aaron, right? He was one of the leaders, Aaron and Moses. They were God-appointed authorities, and it was a gift from God. God-appointed authority, so you would know how to, how to follow. And there was a mutiny there, too. And so this is a box that contains transgressions and sins and iniquities and deceits all meant for good, and we made them evil, and they represent us. And on the top of this box, the lid of the box, has two cherubs, angels, war angels is what they are, war angels looking down inside the box at our judgment. (laughs) No one gets out of here alive. So Aaron walks back there with this blood from the goat, 
and he covers the lid with blood, and the lid is called the mercy seat. And it's called the mercy seat because when the blood is covering that, it's as though it's a metaphor to help us understand God can't see through the blood at all the charges against us. The blood has covered that. And this was all the point to Jesus. That's why he died. It was his blood that covers us. He was the first goat. Aaron comes out. He gets the second goat. He puts his hand on the head of that goat and confesses in great laborious detail all the sins of the nation. And then he's given off to another priest who's in uh, sacramental uh, uh, robes, and they take this goat as far out of the community as possible so that he will be lost in the wilderness and die ugly. And that represents the sin that is taken away and never seen of again. And that points to Jesus. He's the second goat too. He's what's called, literally, that's where we get the word, he's the scapegoat. So Jesus is the scapegoat. Jesus is the first goat who is slaughtered. And that's why David has this vision of all the things he's done, but he sees himself now as the person personally responsible for the Day of Atonement and, the, you know, needing it. So here's now, with that understanding, let's read this. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven. They're thrown away. They're taken out by the scapegoat. Those whose sins are covered by what? By the blood of Jesus. Joyful is the woman whose iniquities the Lord does not count against her because they're gone. When he looks upon her, he sees no deceit. He can't see through the blood. This is what it means to be transformed by the grace of God. This type of forgiveness and covering and, and sending off, that's the forgiveness we, that we receive in Jesus Christ by grace alone. It's only as a gift from God. And because David is foreseeing that only through Christ, a future Messiah, will he ever experience this, he is overwhelmed and has three applications for us. He wants us to do three things if we understand that godly sorrow brings forth repentance that brings about salvation and a life with no regrets. He wants us to do three things. First thing, he wants us to don't be stubborn. <laughs> he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the ways that you should go. That is, choose A, you know. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule which has no understanding and must be controlled by a bit or a bridle, or they will not come to you. <laughs> Don't be slow on this repentance. It is good to confess your sins to one another. Why are you taking so long? Don't be proud. Don't be a jackass. That's what he's really saying. Why would you be such a jackass when it comes to what God would do if you had a contrite heart? It is good to confess your sins. Two, he said, make your choice. There's a fork in the road, and it's life or death. He says, many are the woes of the wicked, but Jehovah's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Choose option A. Godly sorrow brings forth repentance, brings salvation, life without regret. Choose that. Choose life. Don't wallow in death 
the wicked die. And then finally, he says, rejoice, you upright. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad. You righteous, sing, all of you who are upright in heart. Go to jail, forgiven. And while you're going there, don't mope, don't march, skip. You're free. That's the way you should live. The power of Christianity, the very definition of Christianity is this, that all that we have is a, is for, is a gift from God, that our right standing in relationship to him upon our conversion and the rest of our lives with him is him being the goats in the day of atonement on our behalf. There is power in innocence. The power of Christianity is innocence regained. The power of God's spirit in our life is the ability to obey. Here's the application. It, probably it's kind of obvious, right? Do you need to repent? Do you need to experience godly sorrow so that it brings forth repentance, so that you might experience a salvation in a whole new light? Some of you maybe for the first time. Some of you need to regain innocence so that you can live a life without regret. Maybe we should think about that while we pray together, okay? Let's close our eyes. Let's, let's think about that. With, with all the clarity of this psalm about about option A and godly sorrow, do you need to do something to be right? Are you hiding a deceit? Are, are, you, are you living with iniquity? You transgress the boundaries of God with impunity? Not just confess your sins to the Lord. Do you need to confess your sins to someone? There's only life that comes when you do that. You'll be free. Innocence regained. Joy restored. I think there's a second application before I pray. Are you a Nathan? Do you need a knock on someone's door? Do you need to confront someone so that you might be part of setting them free? Don't underestimate the power of a good conversation. Lord, we are so grateful for this psalm and Psalm 51 where David pleads please with you that you would restore his joy, the joy of his salvation, that you would wash him with hyssops like a leper to be cleansed again, that you would make his injuries to be white as snow. We boast as a people, not in ourselves or our sin, but in what you have done with us, how you've made us well. We confess that we do not do what we're supposed to do, and we violate the very things that we're commanded to abstain from. We pervert the good and we make evil appear to be the cool thing. 
So Lord, I'd ask that you would help us as an entire audience renew a sense of joy and the power of innocence that we would lust for not ill, but for, for intimacy with you. Lord, I'd ask that if there's a Nathan in this room that needs courage or clarity, I'd ask that you'd give that to him or her as well. We are grateful. And now we sing. We get to sing because of the joy that is within us. Because you have forgotten our sins. You have covered our sins. You have set us free from them. You are our king and our savior. And our hope is in nothing except the blood of your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.